You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell, editor of The Insider, here with Will Doran and Don Vaughn of the News and Observer. Uh, sort of quiet December, relatively, in North Carolina politics, but um, not as quiet as it could be for several reasons. We've got candidate filing that started Monday, so a slew of people running for uh, a wide range of state offices, everything from Congress down to district court judge and county commission and things like that uh, are filing for office, which means we're also getting retirement season of the people who decided now that they don't want to file for another term in office. Um, and we also had uh, earlier this week the uh, final congressional redistricting decision. Um, as far as we know, we, uh, we think we're set for the congressional lines uh, for next year. So, of course, that's triggering all the uh, the potential candidates to come out of the woodwork uh, in the new districts. So uh, I guess we should start with that since that sort of colored the, the tone of, of filing season. Uh, Will, you've written about that decision. So where do we stand now on um, who's who's in what congressional district next year? Yeah, the uh, we finally have final maps. The court hearing was on the same day that filing opened. The judges had previously uh, said nobody can file for these congressional races before we basically decide whether or not these new maps that the legislature drew for our congressional seats last month are okay or not. Um, but on the day that filing opened, they had this court hearing and wrapped it up pretty quickly and uh, essentially ruled in Republicans' favor. Uh, said that, no, the, the maps the Republicans drew last month are workable. Uh, the judges were very clear that, you know, if there had been more time, maybe we could have gone through a fuller trial, really explored some of the criticisms that the Democrats made of these maps, but they were really concerned with not wanting to delay the primaries and basically also looked at the maps and said they're, you know, definitely more equitable than the previous maps were. So just kind of, you know, on balance, they decided to let the map stand. What that means in... Reality is that Democrats are going to expect to pick up two new seats in Congress, uh, one in the Raleigh area, one in the Greensboro area, um, actually Greensboro and Winston-Salem. And we obviously filing hasn't stopped, so we still have a couple weeks where candidates could file on those. But there have been some some big names that people will remember from uh, 2018, 2016. Uh, in the Raleigh seat, Deborah Ross has filed former state legislator who... Uh, ran against Richard Burr for the Senate seat back in 2016. She's going to be running for uh, what was George Holding's old seat. And Holding has all but confirmed that he's probably not going to seek re-election. Yeah, he hasn't announced it in those terms, but uh, I guess Brian Murphy and our DC Bureau interviewed him uh, earlier this week, and he said, I'm not going to run a race I can't win, which is basically that new district. And he doesn't want to primary any of the... um, congressmen in his party who are in the surrounding districts like David Rouser or Richard Hudson or any of the others. So that doesn't really leave him any options uh, at that point. Yeah, he uh, he obviously primaried uh, Renee Elmers back in 2016, but that was a really nasty primary fight, and it seems that he's just not really... He doesn't want to have a repeat of something like that, and he doesn't want to run in a race that he's obviously going to lose, which is what his new district looks like it would be. 
Um, it's pretty heavily democratic. So um, he also mentioned the census. So how is that going to change things in a couple of years? Yeah, he said, uh, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that he's done with politics forever. Obviously, after the 2020 census, North Carolina is expected to go from having 13 seats in the House of Representatives to 14 seats. Uh, Good question, Don. (laughs) And probably one of those new seats will be uh, around the Triangle area, just because this this region is growing so fast. We won't be able to contain the number of congressional seats just by population, I guess, that we've got now. Right, exactly. Uh, we're Because the state is growing so fast, and especially this area here in the Triangle, uh, we're almost definitely going to get a new seat somewhere, and probably just the way that you have to kind of divvy up the numbers is probably going to be around either Raleigh or Charlotte, just because those two areas are exploding. Um, so, you know, Holdings kind of... It, it seemed from reading uh, Brian Murphy's article on this, talking to him, that he's looking ahead to 2022, those elections and potentially running uh, for Congress again then. And of course, that year we're also going to have a free-for-all for for, uh, Richard Burr's Senate seat. He's already said um, months ago that he doesn't plan to run for re-election when that's up in 2022. Uh, So you'll see on both sides tons of people, Republicans and Democrats, jumping into that primary. But that's still three years away. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know it, it feels like we've been waiting for this Richard Burr seat to come over for so long. I remember he first announced his plans at the 2016 Republican convention because that was one of the stories we wrote off of uh, my coverage of a trip to Cleveland that year. And that was before he was even reelected in 2016. He was like, if I get reelected, I'm not going to run again. And that's six or seven years away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's definitely going to be a really attractive seat to a wide variety of Republicans. I think at one point, uh, House Speaker Tim Moore sort of alluded to that being a possibility for him because he said in, a, in an interview with Spectrum News recently that uh, he wants to be Speaker again in after 2020, uh, but that would be his last term as, as House Speaker. And then he would look at political options. He's a fairly young guy, comparatively at least, um, going forward. And it almost seems like he's leaning towards uh, a run for, for Senate in 2022. So that's we're getting way ahead of ourselves now. I guess we should sort of reel it back into... Yeah, let, um, let's look at the election happening next year, yeah, three years from uh, now. Before we, you know, <laughs> get too far down the fantasy politics long-term road. Um, but yeah, in addition to the to the Raleigh seat the Democrats are expecting to pick up, they're also expecting to pick up uh, the seat uh, right now that's held by Mark Walker uh, that in the future is going to cover uh, basically all of Guilford County and then the uh, Winston-Salem parts of Forsyth County. Um, Walker, like Holding, hasn't, you know, hasn't really said what he's doing, um, but he's widely regarded as being very ambitious, kind of a rising star in national Republican Yeah, circles. he's definitely made clear he's not stepping down and jumping out of, of politics next year, like Holding has indicated. Um, and I think I saw an Associated Press story yesterday that someone on his staff confirmed that he's looking at, I think, three different options, uh, whether to primary one of the Republicans in the conservative districts around him, which would be, I think, either uh, Ted Budd in the 13th or Richard Hudson in, uh, I think it's the 8th. Um, So either of those guys um, are in counties that include portions of Walker's old district. So I think he thinks he could uh, potentially be competitive there. But then he's apparently also looking at a run for U.S. Senate. So 
Tom Tillis, who just this week learned he doesn't have a primary opponent in Raleigh businessman Garland Tucker, who's been coming after him for months uh, and has now dropped out, uh, could find himself with another primary opponent if Mark Walker decides to jump into that race. There seems to be some polling going on uh, to try to assess that, uh, whether he would be viable or not. So we'll see what happens. There's also the former Sandy Smith that's running. And then on the Democrat side, Cal Cunningham, it's time he came out of his quote-unquote windowless basement uh, for a press conference Monday um, between the Capitol and the legislative building. Um, and he is getting a lot of attention, but Erica Smith is also, or at least in polls, um, a couple different polls where she's edged out Cunningham some, and I talked to her um, briefly on Monday, and she said she's excited about that. Smith is a state senator right now, um, African-American woman. And so I, I don't know. We'll see how, how things end up going with them, like what support they have. Cunningham didn't have the only politician or, or recently elected official I saw was um, Steph Mendel, who was on Raleigh City Council, but that just switched over this week. Um, so we'll see who campaigns for him or with him. And then um, Smith isn't quite as high profile, I guess, um, as far as her any sort of press conference she's had has been um, legislative related because that's where she works. Um, so we'll see how, how things go with both of them. But um, I'd say right now, like it's probably a toss up between the two of them. Yeah, it's because it, what's been interesting is I feel like Smith's um, fundraising disadvantage, she's really raised way less money than, than Cal Cunningham has, has sort of been... Uh, offset by the fact that the Republicans are, in a sense, almost promoting her candidacy. They're sending out a lot of news releases mm-hmm. and ads, yeah. um, sort of targeting her, which essentially makes her a more recognizable, more competitive candidate for right. someone who otherwise doesn't have a whole lot of money to spend on their own ads. Well, one of those the polls where she's ahead is a Fox News poll, you know, and and tell us how secure his seat is. You know, he got some scatter booze at the at the Trump rally. Um, he um, Fayetteville a few months ago, um, so I, I don't know. It's really it could depend on just how everyone votes overall, you know, presidential, and if that's a you know if people vote straight ticket or not, uh, depending on how that goes. Um, but on the still on the primary level, I think um, it's going to be like who you know people who are Democrats who do who do they want to represent them, and then also who do they think. Um, and the same thing with the presidential primary, who do they think can defeat the incumbent? Um, so it's going to be down to like what, you know, are people voting who do they actually want Senator Smith versus Senator Cunningham or do they want whichever one of them um, can defeat Tillis? Um, and that's kind of what we'll, we'll probably see the same thing with the, um, the presidential primary. And, and I don't know. I don't know what the Democratic mindset is as far as what, um, what their preferences are. I would think that overall they just want you know, um, someone within their own party, but whether or not they're going to vote for that um, primary candidate um, based on, like, longer range or not is... Yeah, we'll it's, it's always hard to tell with those. Uh, and speaking of the presidential primary, some interesting news on that front this week. The state law, which I had, had forgotten to pay attention to, requires this week as the deadline for all the political parties uh, to submit their um, ballot candidates. And the the way the law is written basically says they you have to 
put in the names of anybody who um, I think is generally recognizable and has gotten media coverage at the state or national level. Um, so it's a very vague word in, in uh, description of the statute. Uh, so the Democrats put in pretty much everybody who's still in the race, about 15 people, uh, including people who haven't necessarily made the debate stage, um, but are, are still officially candidates. Republican Party in North Carolina, exactly one name on their ballot, Donald Trump, um, which essentially snubs two other fairly well-known candidates on the Republican side, um, former Governor Bill Weld from Massachusetts, I think. Um, and Who former, ran as a Libertarian in 2016, yeah, right? Yeah, he was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian ticket uh, last time around, now running as a Republican. Um, and then Joe Walsh, a former congressman and I think radio talk show host or something, um, is also running. And neither of those names made the cut for the NCGOP. Uh, and when I asked about that, they basically said, we don't think these guys fit this definition. Um, and then they went on to praise Trump in the statement that they put out. So they're pretty much all in for, for Trump as their nominee, even though the primary hasn't been held. But what to me is really interesting about this is the fate of uh, Weld and Walsh in North Carolina rests in the hands of the board majority at the state board of elections, which is three Democrats and two Republicans. So Weld has already put in his request because under state law, the state board of elections can actually go back in and say, uh, when they review these lists uh, in January, add people to the list if they think these other people also meet the definition in state law. Um, so Bill Weld's campaign has already written in to uh, Damon Sarcosta, the Democratic chairman of the elections board, asking to be added to the ballot and making his case for why he meets the, the legal standard for this. So I, my guess is you might see a party line vote on the state board of elections, and it's a, it would be just enough if that happens to get Weld and potentially Walsh as well onto the ballot in the Republican primary. Well, Mark Sanford came in. He could have been on there, but his campaign yeah, he came dropped out in time. Yeah. just about as weird as his um, Appalachian Trail hike. So. Yeah, so so much for, for Sanford as a North Carolina uh, ballot contender here. Um, but that'll be a, a fun story to watch uh, going into, I think, January when the Board of Elections gets to rule on that. Um, but, of course, the Congress and um, President aren't the only things... Uh, going on this week and with the filing period, uh, legislative races are also uh, getting underway through filing. So, Dawn, you've been trying to keep tabs on the absurdly long spreadsheet that the State yeah. Board of Elections pu pulls out every day of, of who's signed up. So what are you seeing? Um, a lot of people go by their middle names. I've learned that from going yeah, through There are a lot of things. unfortunate legal first names that I, I too, would not want if that was my name. So I can understand why you might go by a middle name or initials or a nickname. Um, Pricey Harrison. Price is her middle name, and that's how she goes by Pricey Harrison, Representative Harrison. Um, anyway, so that that's you know just fun. Um, maybe only reporters or, or overly wonky people are actually excited about that sort of thing. Um on the, um, we were talking about people leaving office, and we talked last week about um, uh, State Senator Floyd McKissick leaving Durham, and, and as expected, people that have already announced their campaigns, Pierce Freelon and Allie Murdoch filed. But Representative Marianne Black, also from Durham, said that she's not running again. She was one of those that announced, um, I guess, last week or the week before. And a current um, first-term Durham City Council member, Vernetta Alston, um, filed, which um, we feared, you know, maybe it'd be somebody already in the political circles there. Um, but that was kind of a surprise. And um, I got an email from her, I guess, Tuesday morning saying that she was going to file. And so far, she's the only one for, for black seats. So that'll be interesting to see if maybe the, um, she's a Democrat, Durham's all Democrat, or, um, or vast majority anyway. Um, 
if everyone's already decided that Alston is who they want for um, for black seat and that she'll get it. Um, so those kind of things are fun with um, filing week to me anyway. Um, other surprises, not not really. There's you know more filed you know Speaker Tim Moore filed for re-election. Uh, Burger's campaign said that you know he was planning to. Um, there haven't been any other like I don't think really surprises with anybody that's running. Some some Republicans, a few of them are getting um, primaried, um, but there's nothing. I mean, I haven't looked at the. Yeah, it's hard to tell this today. stage of the people who are getting primaried if it's like a serious primary challenge or not. So you kind of have to understand the politics of like some county two hours away from Raleigh to know whether the the name is anybody. Anyone yeah, it could be their nemesis from kindergarten that always files against them for all we know, or it could be someone that... Yeah, like, you the know, head like of the county commission or more. something who everyone yeah. knows and loves or something like that. Yeah, so, and then Wake County, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, filing day is something that's, um, you know, politicians love Twitter. Um, and so it's like, here's our, like, group photo of all of us, like, you know, filing or themselves. And, and so the Wake delegation of the Democrats, so the Wake delegation... Um, you know, all went together and took group pictures and the massive like Charlotte Mecklenburg delegation is like, you know, here we all are filing and everything. So, um, you know, it's fun for obviously politicians too. Um, as far as any other um, on this general assembly level, I didn't see anything interesting. Other The lieutenant governor race, everybody wants to be lieutenant governor. Oh, yeah. Um, because, you know, there's that coal house over there, I guess. Like, that's yeah. why they want it. You and, don't really you have know. to do that much other than show up to preside over the state senate. Even that, you can skip out on if you want to, as Dan Forrest does sometimes. So, it's a big, I mean, you know, the superintendent, Mark Johnson, is running. Um, he's got plenty of, you know, Republican company. Um, former uh, Congress member Renee Elmer's. Let's see who else. Greg Gebhardt, Buddy Bengal, um, Deborah Cochran. Let's see who else. Um, Scott Stone, Mark Robinson, and then Democrats. Um, we've got Chaz Beasley, Representative Chaz Beasley, um, Senator Terry Van Dyne. We've got Representative um, Yvonne Lewis Hawley. And who else? Bill Tool, Alan Thomas. That's a long list. And like, you know, I, it, it could get longer. I yeah, think. I like, haven't seen know. any new names show up so far, but we've got a couple of weeks left in the filing period. And, mm -hmm. you know, anything can happen. And speaking of long lists, I, I went through the uh, judicial, statewide judicial filings uh, the other day. And those are a doozy because we've got three Supreme Court seats that are up for grabs. Um, and each one is its own race. So it's not like you have this long list of names and you pick your top three and those are the top three that win. It's... It's like essentially a one-on-one -on -one for every single seat. So three on the Supreme Court, five on the State Court of Appeals. Um, so a lot of judges to review. It looks like um, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have essentially a full slate where they've divvied up the seats among the people who voiced interest in running. So some of the ones to watch. Um, Paul Newby, who's an associate justice on the Supreme Court, challenging, giving up his seat to challenge uh, Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who was appointed by the Governor Cooper recently and is a Democrat. Um, and then so that leaves for uh, Newby's old seat, uh, Phil Berger Jr., son of the Senate leader and a current Court of Appeals judge, uh, is running as the Republican for Supreme Court uh, opposite a fellow judge from the Court of Appeals, uh, Democrat Lucy Inman. Um, and then there's a bunch of races uh, for with some lesser known folks on the Court of Appeals. And uh, since I don't want to extend Domecast to a full hour, I'm not going to go through all the names for that. But uh, suffice it to say, um, there's a lot of choices to be made on the ballot. The Supreme Court race is going to be really interesting to watch. In 2016, 
I think we were the most expensive judicial race in the country. And that was, we just had one seat up for grabs uh, back then. Uh, current Justice Mike Morgan won then. And there were millions and millions of dollars spent on that race. This year we have three of the seven seats up. And it's currently a six to one Democratic majority. But if Republicans sweep all of those seats, that will flip it. And, you know, you could see... <coughs> a Republican majority come back to the Supreme Court. So there's going to be just tons of money. I mean, the 2020 election is going to be crazy. We've got yeah. <laughs> we've got the president, we have a Senate race, we have governor's race, we have the whole council of state, you know, attorney general, everything. And then we have, you know, the whole general assembly, everybody in Congress, and then the Supreme Court. It's it's just going to be a, a wild... An extravaganza. Uh, next yeah. 10 months. <laughs> oh, I wonder if you can fit it all. You know, they're definitely going to have to do double-sided ballots, but I don't know if there are going to be so many races that you actually have to go into, like, a second page or something. It's I a little know, booklet yeah. of... Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like the Santa Claus, like, naughty nice list, but, like, just a ballot. Or, like, the CVS receipt. Like, yeah, yeah. They're just like... you. They hand it to you, and it, like, stretches down from your hands <laughs> to the floor. Oh, we didn't talk about Council of State yet. Some of the bigger names there, uh, Attorney General Stein's running again, um, which you see, you know, people running for General Assembly that are moving from local government. There's the same um, from the bigger municipalities um, running for statewide office. So Jessica Holmes from Wake County Commissioners is running for Labor Commissioner. Keith Sutton from the Wake County School Board is running for state superintendent. Um, so part of that is moves that you think, you know, people will, will switch from um, local government to state government. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the superintendent yeah. field is, is pretty yeah, large. Yeah, that's a huge field because um, Johnson is not running since he's running for lieutenant governor. And then right. the other open seat is labor commissioner because Cherie Berry, right, right. Uh, the infamous elevator lady, is uh, stepping down from her so, position in elevators. Um, so will the new labor commissioner also have yeah. Yeah, so that's going to be Jessica it. Holmes on the Democratic side, assuming others don't file and, and run against her in the primary. And then Josh Dobson, uh, Josh Dobson and I think Pearl Bur Burris Floyd, who's a yes. former lawmaker and a member of the Board of Governors, or at least used to be on the Board of Governors, um, mm -hmm. has also filed the Republican nomination on that. So that'll be interesting to see who gets their picture in elevators and whether they decide to put it there or not. Um, so that will be one to watch. Um, at, the, at the county level, um, Durham and Wake County commissioners are up next year. And Ellen Reckow in Durham is not running again. And she's uh, been a commissioner, I think, around like 30 years or so, or well over 20-some years, maybe even over 30 years. Um, so a former uh, LaVon Barnes is one of the candidates, and he was a... Um, formerly ran for city council, um, Nita Alam, who had applied for um, an open appointed seat on Durham City Council. So people that have run before um, and not been successful have, have stuck around and gone through like the political world at the local level and are, and are showing up again. Um, Wake County Commissioners... I don't I think most of the uh, um, incumbents have filed for re-election. I don't yeah. know if there's going to be any... Uh, the interesting thing to watch in these local races in the, the urban areas is whether Republicans can make any sort of resurgence. I mean, the Wake County Commission, all Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, Mecklenburg, I think, is similar. Jim Morrill and Charlotte had a story about some of the uh, former Mecklenburg County Republican commissioners have filed to run again and try to get their seats back, as have two in the legislature. Uh, former Representative Bill Brawley and uh, Re former Representative John Bradford are both running to try to get their seats back that they lost 
last year in the, the big Democratic wave. So it'll be interesting to see if Republicans can crawl, crawl, uh, claw back some of their big losses it's, in the urban counties. It's possible because I think local government is, uh, it doesn't, I mean, a lot of the issues don't necessarily fall along any sort of party lines, you know, and so you can, depending on what you campaign on, whether it's scooters or whatever, you know, like depending on um, party, you might have a chance. We kind of commissioners switched their um, commissioner's chair um, from, I believe it was Holmes, since she's, you know, planning on um, on leaving to Greg Ford, who's um, already on, on commission. And then Durham County commissioners, the commi- uh, chairs aren't like for people who are listening and maybe don't know this with, you know, mayor, you vote for differently with city council, but uh, chair commissioners, the commissioners choose. Um, so they have they have their own you know um, annual election of who they who they want to run it. Um, we haven't talked about the governor's race yet, which is oh, obviously yeah. so it has been kind of quiet know, with the filing. It's Roy Cooper. Here. I don't think he's filed yet. Like for the last time I checked, for the last twelve hours, um, Holly Grange. Uh, so he has two Republican challengers or two Republicans that are challenging each other in the primary, and of course Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who is. Um, higher profile being in that office, but also Representative Holly Grange is running, and she filed Monday as well. And again, what you were saying with Tillis responding to Smith and Cunningham, Cooper's office responded to Grange's press release about filing, you know, why she thinks she's better than Cooper, and then um, the same thing when, when Forrest filed. Um, so we'll see how it's not necessarily a done deal that Forrest has it. Um, it could be Grange. We'll kind of see how things he's, like I was saying, higher profile, but, um, we'll see how they, how things pan out in the next month or more. Yeah. And the other thing we're watching is, um, filing season continues is the, uh, legislative retirements of people who aren't running again. And I've, I've started compiling a spreadsheet because I was starting to lose track of all these names. And if I've got it complete now, I'm up to 21 incumbents who are either not running again or they're running for a different position like utilities or like a U.S. Senator, Lieutenant Governor, Labor Commissioner, Governor, uh, as Holly Grange is. And then trying to assess who may step into their shoes from that party, particularly in districts that lean a very strong direction. Uh, so we had a couple more this week. Um, Representative Michelle Presnell from way up in the mountains in Yancey County. Uh, Republican is uh, not running again, and she's endorsed Haywood County Commissioner Mark Pless, another Republican, to replace her. Um, and then who else have we heard from uh, recently? Uh, um, Rick Horner, Senator Rick Horner of Nash County, uh, not running again. Um, that should be a fairly competitive race because of the way the lines are drawn. Um, so it looks like it's going to be um, from the Republican side, Johnston County Commissioner Patrick Harris, who I think I covered him when he was the Smithfield Fire Chief many, many years ago, so that name looks familiar to me. And then former State Senator Alan Wellens, a Democrat from Johnston County, is also uh, announced this week he's running for that seat. Uh, it looks like we've actually got a lot of like former lawmakers who want to come back, which I don't know how you watch from afar this year's long session and how grueling and to some degree unproductive it was and say... I want to go back there. I'm missing that fun drama. You're counting up all those per diems and saying, yeah, yeah I mean, maybe that's what it is. Because just, just on yeah. my list alone. They want to be part of the action or inaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of the open seats, um, we're seeing uh, one of the people stepping down is uh, Republican Representative John Fraley from Iredell County. Uh, former Representative Gray Mills, who I think also ran for higher office at one point, um, is running for that seat. Chuck McGrady, the Republican from Henderson County and one of the uh, the booze czars of the legislature is stepping down. Former uh, Representative Tim Moffat uh, is running for his seat. Uh, Senator Andy Wells, uh, Republican from Catawba County, 
stepping down to run for lieutenant governor. So former Representative Mark Hollow uh, is trying to get his seat. So we're, we're seeing uh, quite a few of these people who want to come back into action. I wonder if all these people not running because they're running for lieutenant governor. Um, I mean, they're kind of... You're putting your eggs all in one basket. You really? Because there's you a can't lot of go them. Back. Yeah. I mean, you, once the filing period is done, if you lose your primary, you still don't get to run for anything else next year. Yeah. You're done for the year. And they're, I mean, they're, especially some of the ones that are younger and earlier in their political career. And yeah, how do you, how do you circle back if it doesn't work out this time and, and come around again? Yeah, it's, it's a gamble. I don't know if it's the smartest political gamble, but I guess the LG office is uh, just so enticing that, that people are willing to uh, potentially give it up. Um, and then the other thing I've noticed among the people who are stepping down, some are actually citing this year's marathon session as the reason. I was at a Free Enterprise Foundation lunch event yesterday where some of the legislative leaders were talking. Um, and Senate Majority Leader Harry Brown, who recently announced that this term is going to be his last after well over a decade in the Senate, um, was asked, you know, how do you attract more small business owners like Brown, like himself, to serve in the legislature? Because um, Brown owns, I looked up his uh, holdings and it's, he's known as being a car dealer, but he also owns a radio station, a horse farm, an insurance company. So he's He's got a lot of businesses interest down in the, the Jacksonville area, but he said, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons that he's not running again is that he says his business has suffered this year because he was in Raleigh so much um, and he needs to go home and, and sort of tend to his um, business empire down in, in Jacksonville. So he said the there's a need to shorten the length of the legislative session um, in order to attract more business people. Now, he didn't outline an actual plan for that, but I did look up and note that um, there was a bill filed to do that um, and set a certain maximum time limit number of days for each uh, year's legislative session that actually had bipartisan support in the Senate. Uh, the co-sponsors were Democrat Jay Chaudhary and uh, Republican Jerry Tillman. Uh, but despite that, bill went nowhere, went to the Rules Committee, never heard from again. So. I mean, it's, it's interesting that Brown would say that when he's in a leadership position, though. He could have moved that bill this year, yeah. Well, and also <laughs> has control of, I mean, because the reason it lasted so long was for drawn-out budget standoff political, you know, win reason so you know they have i don't know it's they have more control than it's i guess it's easier to blame um sort of this amorphous like you know because all of us did this instead of saying like well you also have a hand in deciding like how long or short the session can be you know all right i think that covers the the landscape of the um filing period so let's uh take a break and come back with headline of the week And welcome back to Domecast. It's now time for Headliner of the Week. Uh, and since there's only three of us in the room this week, um, rather than have a head-to-head uh, between two out of three of us and then the other person be a judge, um, I think we may just let Google's random number generator be the judge, and we'll all three put somebody in the hat. So Fate uh, will decide our headliner. Let, uh, let's let, let fate and the gods of the internet pick a headliner. So let's start off with Will. Who's your headliner? Uh, my headliner is Silent Sam, the... Uh, Former UNC Confederate statue. Uh, it's still a statue, but it's formerly of UNC. Yeah. Uh, now Milwaukee has a new proud new owner. It does. The Sons of Confederate Veterans have taken over. Um, it was in the news this week uh, because the UNC Board of Governors uh, decided to give the Sons of Confederate Veterans not only the statue, but also two and a half million dollars to deal with the statue, to put it up um, in a deal that basically says you can't put it up in a county that has a UNC system school in it 
there was a whole lot of controversy over this, not only because of the large number involved, the $2.5 million, but also because uh, some intrepid diggers went through the legal filings and all this and found out that basically the way this happened was it was a legal settlement, but it had been agreed to by both the UNC system and the Sons of Confederate Veterans before the Sons of Confederate Veterans had ever filed their lawsuit. So it essentially looked as if they came to an agreement, UNC said, okay, go ahead and sue us so that we can put this down in writing, and then that's what happened. So a lot of people were kind of angry about the sort of, you know, backroom dealing that that implied and questioned, you know, why the UNC system is even working with that group so hand-in-hand. Um, and they're declaring victory, right? It's like, oh, a, yeah, yeah, they're declaring. We victory. wanted less money than this, and we got more money than we initially wanted. Yeah, the 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 SCV, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, sent out this very lengthy, boastful statement to members that then was leaked to the press. Uh, you know, saying, oh, you know, we were we were working with the legislature, going for you know maybe three to five hundred thousand dollars, and here we are with two and a half million. This is great. This is a major, major strategic victory for us. So that um, amount is interesting because I was like, why does two and a half million sound familiar? That's how much is in the state budget this year for an African-American's monument on our state capitol grounds. So that's the same amount of money. So we're offsetting the money spent on Silent Sam to give him a new museum somewhere else uh, by also doing this new project. Well, I mean, the budget didn't pass. Oh, that's right. That didn't <laughs> so, so maybe we're not off. No money oh. for the North Carolina yeah. African Americans monument on the Capitol grounds. But you know, the soldier statue. There you go. There's but, some money for you. You know, the the UNC Board of Governors is also kind of declaring victory on this. They're saying, look, you know, we managed to get this thing off campus where students had rioted and torn it down in protest, um, and where the university had been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year paying police officers overtime to go protect it from the protesters. And this kind of gets them around the monument protection law, too, because um, they figured out essentially it's a legal loophole by changing ownership um, over who technically owns and has owned all this time the Silent Sam statue. Then it's no longer you know protected by law to be put back up at essentially the same spot. So I guess that's part of... You know, they're with where they see a win there. Um, well, it was Dyer's of the Confederacy that gave it, right? Yeah, which is the same for yeah. And then they gave up their rights to the sons of Confederate veterans, right? Um, so it's all this like sort of minute legal wranglings that get them around a law that says that they're supposed to put it back up. But it's the phrase like place of prominence, or yeah, something like that. So, yeah, so they, yeah, they were able to get around that law that basically prevents these statues from being moved by the university system. Um, and I, I don't think we've heard yet where it's going to go. Yeah, um, they have not announced. So there's a picture going around of him in a warehouse with the sons of Confederate veterans guy, yeah, but, uh, but they, that, they have a lot of support in both Chatham and Alamance counties, both of which don't have a UNC system school. So we could see something yeah. there. Um, but yeah, and there has been a, a tendency. And if you drive any of the highways in, in both, I think North Carolina and Virginia, these fairly recent, um, giant Confederate flag displays where they put it on private property, but it's get it high enough that it's very visible. That one's been there state. a while in Virginia. Yeah, the there's been even more ones stuff. recently just driving the around. around. But it, around. it made me imagine whether one of these groups is going to try to put Silent Sam on such a huge pedestal that he's like towering over like I-85 or something. In well, they have two and a half million dollars. So yeah, I mean, you can build a tall pedestal for Silent Sam with that, I would think. <laughs> uh, but I shouldn't be speculating and giving anyone ideas for where he should go because... Um, 
they got to decide on their own on that. Um, so <laughs> enough about Silent Sam. Dawn, who's your headliner? Uh, Senator Harry Brown, who we talked about. Um, so this is my first uh, year covering the, the state legislature, and um, you get to know like these familiar people. And, and so filing week for me is exciting just because, you know, I'm a political reporter and it's exciting. Um, it's like signing day in sports. Um, but also finding out like, oh, like who's, um, you know, who's, uh, well, not been traded, I guess there's, or like moving to another team, but, um, you know, the sports equivalent of retiring, um, political retiring leaving office. Harry Brown is a pretty high profile person. Um, of course he has like, you know, next year too, but, um, you know, he's a Republican Senate Majority Leader, um, always has something to say on the floor, not in the way that some of the other ones do, um, where they carry on. And I don't know if he's gotten the ox meter or not. Um, but it was interesting just seeing him and Floyd McKissick, um, who was our, was he our headliner last week or your headliner last week? I don't remember if he won or not. Um, just the exchange there where whatever their political differences are, um, you know, they're pretty cordial and they're professional when they talk to you and they don't run away from you in the hallway like some other unnamed lawmakers <laughs> uh, or haven't yet. Um, so I'm going to say Harry Brown because of just um, his stature in the Senate and um, obviously his own um, constituents who, who put him there. All right. Harry Brown in the hat along with Silent Sam. Um, so I'm going to go to myself last since I'm not judging and we'll let Google do that. Um, and I'm going to pick, um, uh, someone who's going to be on the ballot in North Carolina, whose name is not Bill Weld, um, but who's running in the, um, libertarian primary. And that's Vermin Supreme. That's, uh, his <laughs> official name. It's the official name that will appear on the ballot. I'm um, so glad that you exempted yourself from judging so that you could do this. Basically, yeah, this is the key <laughs> point. Is, yeah. So, so the libertarians basically, unlike the Republicans, they're saying, Anybody who said they want to be a a libertarian candidate for president can be on our ballot in North Carolina. So they submitted 16 names, Vermin Supreme being one of them. And if you're not familiar with him, um, he's this guy. He's got this, like, long, grizzled gray beard. He wears a rubber boot on his head. um, And one of his uh, campaign platforms is advocating for uh, legally mandatory toothbrushing. Uh, So sometimes he also carries a toothbrush. Um, so he will be an official uh, presidential candidate in North Carolina if you are a libertarian or choose the libertarian ballot. Um, he'll also be on the libertarian ballot with uh, a variety of other folks like software company founder John McAfee. Um, you may have downloaded his antivirus software in the past. Um, and then another person who will appear on the ballot as uh, this is all run together. There's not even quotation marks in the middle name here. Dan Taxation is Theft Berman. Um, so if you like people who call themselves taxationist theft, uh, this guy will be an option for you. Um, it is that is be... just a great coup getting the state to, uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I guess there's no the rules ballot. on that. So, I mean, if I ever run for office, I think I, my winning platform or winning, uh, strategy would just be to name myself on the ba- ballot, Colin beer is delicious Campbell. And then I, you know, <laughs> will cruise to victory easily. Um, so anyway, getting off topic there, but back to my headliner choice, Berman Supreme, Perennial candidate, libertarian uh, ballot pick in North Carolina. Uh, so we've got him in the hat along with uh, Silent Sam and uh, Senator Harry Brown. This is quite retires. the range of... <laughs> yeah, so I am going to pull out my phone, go to the Google generator, pick a number between one and three, and we get three, so I win. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, you I did promise. The, oh, hmm, very interesting. You my screen. It says yeah. three. I, I can confirm it does I say three. I was told there yeah. would be no votes this morning. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dawn will not yield until Harry Brown wins Headliner of the Week. But because we're going by Google, Vermin Supreme is our Headliner of the Week, and uh, that'll do it for this week's Domecast. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.